sí. Afternoon. You are listening to Resonance 104.4 FM, and this is Art Then and Now with me, your host Anna Gammons. This is the show where we explore art from the past and art from the present to understand how we as humans express ourselves through time. Our theme this week is portraiture, and I will be speaking to the amazingly talented Greg Mason about the personal connections he's established through portrait painting. But before that, we are heading way, way back to the early 16th century to look at probably the most famous portrait ever painted. I couldn't talk about portraiture without looking at probably the most famous portrait that has ever existed in Western civilization and perhaps even the world. It is, of course, Leonardo da Vinci's portrait, the Mona Lisa. So da Vinci's resonance portrait, um, sorry, <laughs> Renaissance portrait the, of the Mona Lisa was painted around 1506 and it is the, probably the most referenced, reproduced and admired works of art that has ever existed. But on the surface, it sort of appears to be no more than an average portrait of an average woman. I remember seeing the Mona Lisa in the Louvre with my family as a teenager and it was because of its reputation and value I thought the painting was going to be absolutely huge but it's a very very humble size of about 77 centimetres by 53 centimetres. It's really not that big. I expected it to take up half of the museum itself because it's so famous but uh, this has not stopped it holding the Guinness World Record for the most valuable piece of artwork in the world. It is estimated at over $650 million in 2018. That is just crazy. So why is a seemingly ordinary portrait so valuable and revered? Well, it's a lot to do with the unusual and intriguing qualities of the piece. Its beguiling simplicity has led it to become an icon for many different cultures throughout time, and it's furthered our cultural fascination with it. Also could have been something to do with da Vinci himself. His skills were legendary at the time. He was a painter, he was an architect, he was an engineer, a mathematician and a philosopher. And much like his... Renaissance contemporary Michelangelo, who I spoke about last week in reference to his sculpture of David, Leonardo da Vinci had a fascination and detailed knowledge with the anatomy. His scientific study gave way to his revolutionary depictions of the human body, and this sort of elevated him as a master painter. So he was valuable in himself just as an artist. So could the value be something to do with the subject? Well, there has been controversy surrounding the woman in the painting, with some even suggesting that the piece is a self-portrait of Leonardo in his female form. Interesting. Not sure I agree with that one, but, you know, who's to say this was a hell of a long time ago? But generally, critics have settled on the idea that it is the 24-year-old Lisa Gerardini who is the subject of the piece. Now, the title Mona Lisa comes from the Italian word, which is Mona, which kind of means the equivalent of mom in English, and then followed by the sitter's name. So that's how we get Mona Lisa. Lisa was the wife of a, a wealthy Florentine silk merchant, Francesco di Giacondo. And it's been suggested but that the painting was perhaps commissioned to celebrate the arrival of their second child. But some have also suggested that the Mona Lisa has a, a kind of bears resemblance to the 
Virgin Mary, which goes some way in explaining why it might be so revered, particularly by the Catholic Church. Because the three-quarter length profile resembles many other contemporary depictions of the Virgin Mary herself. So it could be a representation of womanhood in this way. It could be a representation of Christianity and of faith. Well, if we look at the painting more closely, we see that da Vinci has used the pyramid design to place the woman very simply and very calmly in the space of the painting. And geometry plays a huge role in the composition of the piece as well. So there are so many spheres and circles if you actually look at the piece and kind of divide it by these lines. The sort of sensual curves of the woman's hair and clothing are very much echoed in the winding valleys and rivers behind her. There's a clever creation of distance between the sitter and the observer too. The armrest of the chair sort of functions as almost a dividing element between Mona Lisa and the viewer and yet her brightly lit face feels warm and inviting. It's a bit paradoxical in that sense. The painting covered very much new territory, literally, by presenting the sitter before an imaginary landscape. Behind her there are sort of spiky mountains, curving pathways and even a hint of a bridge. But the landscape feels slightly threatening and seems almost at odds with the calm and composed nature of the subject. Leonardo was also one of the first painters to use aerial perspective in the piece. As well as this, her upright posture with arms folded, very carefully right hand resting on her left hand, was also a gesture that at the time represented Lisa as a virtuous woman and faithful wife. The use of sfumato as well, which is the soft blending of the oil paint, a new technique at the time, created a sort of ambiguous mood in her facial expression, particularly her mouth and eyes. And this kind of added to the sense of mystery surrounding the piece. Her unreadable expression has led to a further fascination with this piece. She looks kind of happy and sort of sad, depending on which angle you look at her and also which side of her mouth you're observing. Some critics have even suggested that in splitting the piece right down the middle, it becomes two different paintings with two different human representations. One of kind of happiness, potentially she's carrying a child, she looks calm and content. And then the other side, she looks almost a little bit turbulent, a little bit um, unrestful. And there have even been some people that have suggested that this is a unfinished piece as well. It's it's crazy to think that we might admire this piece in all its beauty, but it's actually not finished. And the reason for this is that Leonardo was sort of known to be a perfectionist by his contemporaries. This is well documented in the biography written about him 30 years after his death. But the lack of her eyebrows and eyelashes could suggest that it was actually left unfinished. And many people have suggested that he even revisited his painting over and over again until his death in 1519. So actually the dates of the painting have been slightly contested. There's also been scans of the artwork that have revealed that potentially this piece has been reworked and perhaps even the eyelashes have been removed and the shape of her face has changed. This could have represented at the time where women eyelashes were often plucked and eyebrows were sometimes plucked as well. So this could be an explanation as to why that, that has happened. The fame of the pink painting also comes from its changing hands throughout the years. It has had so many different homes, including the Louvre, which it is now. Um, but it's also been at the Palace of Versailles. It's been in the Tuileries, in Napoleon's bedchamber, 
but no hands more famous than in 1911 when the painting was stolen from the Louvre by an employee, Vincenzo Puraghia. He hid in a broom closet until closing hours and then literally walked out with the painting under his coat as he thought that it should be displayed in an Italian museum. It's also been the centre of many a political scandal because of its high-profile status. After it had been cut with a razor blade by a gentleman who claimed to be in love with the painting, it was then protected by glass. And in 1956, a rock was thrown at the piece, which shattered this glass and damaged the Mona Lisa near her left elbow. Later, the painting was then covered in bulletproof glass, which is now how it resides in the Louvre, behind a big kind of panel. It's in a glass case. It's also got a banister that can protect it, so you are not getting any close to it. <laughs> in 1974, whilst featuring in a Tokyo exhibition, the piece was also attacked with red paint as a protest because the museum lacked disabled access. And in 2009, a Russian lady threw a porcelain teacup bought at the Louvre against the painting after being denied French citizenship. So throughout time, this piece has had its moments and it has accrued fame and value as a result. But it was also influential at its time, particularly by artists such as Raphael, who used the piece as a guideline for many of his paintings. But it's also revered because it was a realistic representation of the female form, whilst also managing to embody a sense of idealised womanhood too. During the 18th century and the 19th century, da Vinci grew in popularity, and in the Victorian period, it was used to represent mystery and romance as well. So there we are. I hope you enjoyed the brief insight into the world's most famous portrait. I caught up with friend of the show, Greg Mason, to discuss his approach to portraiture and his experience on Sky Arts Portrait Artist of the Year 2017 in light of the 2019 finals this week. I hope you enjoy our interview. I'm here with Greg Mason, who you may know from Sky Arts Portrait Artist of the Year and also in 2018 Landscape Artist of the Year. And we're going to talk a little bit about your portraiture today because that's kind of the foundation for what you're doing. Yes, happy to answer <laughs> any uh, questions and uh, yeah, fire away. Fantastic. So, I mean, let's talk a little bit about your background. How did you get into painting and specifically portraiture? The short version is art school uh -huh. back in the 1980s, St Martin's, yeah. um, six years as an illustrator mm -hmm. uh, in London, um, 20 years as an art director in the fashion industry, and yeah. then 10 years ago, I decided to have a life change. Mm -hmm. um, I passed my company on and I taught myself how to paint. Oh my so I decided that I had another shot, a, a different route of being creative. Yeah. Um, and, you know, my kids were pretty much grown up. Mm -hmm. I fortunately paid off my mortgage and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know if millennials are ever going to be saying that in the next 20 Sorry, years, millennials. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm a fair, I am a fair bit older than you, so I've had some time to achieve that. Um, and, yeah, I had a little window of opportunity to, to try something new. So... Painting, yeah, that yeah. was that was the next thing. Mm. And why portraiture specifically? Was that something that you just felt drawn to? You were compelled by people and connection, or what was your? Well, some of my great art heroes, people like Lucien Freud or Taishan Schierenberg, and mm. even back when I was in my early teens, I remember loving people like Toulouse Lautrec and Vincent Van Gogh, and yeah. just 
making a connection with those artists. And when I looked at their work up close, I kind of had this affinity for the way that they were seeing what they were seeing and the way that they were putting it down mm -hmm. on a surface. Yeah. So, so what I did was I armed myself with some uh, materials by Freud and Schierenberg, mm -hmm. and I started working from the figure. Mm -hmm. I didn't actually start with portraiture. Mm -hmm. I worked with a life model, mm -hmm. and it was uh, um, someone who'd never posed before. She'd just done a, a fine art degree in Dartington. How in did Devon. you approach that one then? <laughs> well, it was... I've got a proposition for you. Don't yeah. hear me out. <laughs> I just need you to pose for a year and you've never done it before. And really that, I think that's what I was looking for, someone who didn't come at it with traditional life poses. Yeah. And we've all been to those life drawing classes. We have. Where, <laughs> where you get those overextended poses. Yeah. And I think also what's nice is that you are someone that was relatively inexperienced. You yourself were still learning, mm. and there was almost like a mutual mm -hmm. um, uh, naivety in a really nice way that you could yeah. kind of grow and learn and, and that sort of thing, which is really nice. Okay, so how do you choose your subject matter? You mentioned mm -hmm. that um, yep. you mentioned that you kind of found this model, and you had you took every once a week. You took that off to kind of that was a very um, spontaneous mm. decision, perhaps. The journey went from painting for a year. Uh, through quite a shift. Mm. Um, what happened in my life was that my wife at the time got really poorly and I ended up looking after her for about two and a half years. Mm. Eventually she passed away. And, you know, you left. I was left with one of my children still at home and looking after her and a whole bunch of feelings and questions and um, unresolved things things about processing what had just happened. And probably a lot of anger as well, I imagine. Yeah. And amongst other things, you know, I had some great friends who came alongside me. But mm. amongst other things, I realised that my art was something that I could mobilise and use mm. to help me process that. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I took myself off to a friend's house in the Outer Hebrides on an, the island of North Uist. And I took a bunch of canvases mm. and some paints and I started just painting that wild, mm. windswept landscape up there. Right. And it was a place that was special to us. We'd been there um, a few times, mm. not long before, in fact. Yeah. And I thought, right, I'm going to connect with somewhere we've been together, and I'm going to process some of my anger mm. through painting. Something happened in, the in that process. So when you talk about you know, connecting with what you paint, yeah. that was a really powerful connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used what I was painting and the process of painting to connect with my life experience mm. and somehow work through that without really knowing what the outcome of that would be, but just knowing that it was mm. something that I needed to do. So yeah. that really informed then what I did next, if you yeah. like, that for me it always yeah. had to be about connecting powerfully with whatever it was I was painting. Yeah. And I, would, I make choices around what I am going to accept if it's a commission mm. or... Um, what I'm going to paint based on that. You know, yeah. it has to be something that is of value. Mm -hmm. And what I, when I'm faced with a landscape or, in fact, a person I'm painting, mm. I always look for that one thing, what I call a hero moment, a hero area, right. where I'm noticing that, and maybe nobody else would notice that, but it's the thing that I want other people to see when they look at my painting. Okay. 
Um, so that's my realism. I home in on that one thing. You're exposing something. Yes. How, mm. how does the connection work mm. when, when you're painting people? Because I've always found that the most intimidating subject matter because it's such a personal thing to paint another person. Yeah. Okay, I can give you two examples. Yeah, please they're, do. <laughs> they're, quite, they're quite different examples. One is when I was on the Portrait Artist of the Year show, mm. in my heat I was given the actor Trevor Eve to paint. Mm. And... Um, I did kind of recognise him as an actor from my youth yes. when he came out on set, mm. although he looked very, very different. You know, his face had aged. In fact, he had the most magnificent face to mm. paint. Um, and he sat down in front of us and struck his pose. And there was... He looked a little bit grumpy. And there was a moment when he raised his eyebrow and he had these kind of thick, bushy, grey eyebrows. It was wonderful. <laughs> um, and I just noticed that there was this kind of crease that appeared in his forehead that gave him this moody, deep-thinking, slightly grumpy look. <laughs> and I thought, that's, that's the him that I see. That's mm. the him that I connect with. Yeah. That's the authentic yeah. kind of Trevor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I painted that, and when we all had to turn our paintings round, he came along the line, and one thing you didn't actually see <laughs> on the show was the comment he made when he saw my painting. Go on, In I fact, they had, to, they had to bleep it out. Oh, no. Um, and he went along the line and kind of was quite disparaging in some ways about all three paintings. Yeah. But then when he had that moment to consider which one he was going to take home with him, yeah. he picked mine. Yeah. And the reason he picked it was because he actually saw himself in it. Right, and you'd managed to find and, that And I managed him. to find that, albeit Goodness. in a not very complimentary way. The other yeah. example is um, part of kind of putting myself out there has mm. been entering other competitions like the Royal Portrait Society mm -hmm. competition or the Royal Institute of Oil Painters. Yeah. And I've been... Are happily quite successful in those over mm -hmm. the last few years. Yeah, finalists, I believe, uh, in, in a fair few of those. Yeah, I mean, really lovely to be judged by your peers in that yeah. way. Um, and one of the, I wanted to put in a painting for the Royal Portrait Society competition that was meaningful to me. So mm. um, I wanted to paint my, I decided to paint my mother-in-law, and this is my mother-in-law of my first marriage. Mm -hmm. So in part, it was connected with you know, recognising that I was still connected to family, yeah. even though my wife had yeah. passed away. Yeah. Um, and she in herself had been like a real mother to me, This, uh, my, my mother-in-law. Yeah. Um, in her own right, a really famous textile designer. She was um, awarded the Royal Designer to Industry Awards wow. uh, many years ago for all mm. her work. And extremely humble lady. Mm. Kind of subverting that trope of like, you're in the, the, the kind of, monster mother-in-law she actually was, was more of a, <laughs> no. kind of a parent to you she well, is amazing and yeah I love her to bits mm -hmm. and so I thought right I'm going to go and visit her and we'll start a portrait yeah and I thought I went there with an initial notion of sitting her in front of all of her famous fabrics and the curtains and the furnishings that fill her mm. home and kind of referencing all of her life's work yeah. in this painting and I started to take this approach and mm. suddenly realise that this was just not working. This wasn't how you knew her, though, was yeah. it? Yeah. So, um, so we ended up going into the kitchen in her house and making a cup of tea 
in the old kind of chi China set. Yeah, I've seen this work of yours <laughs> online. It's phenomenal. I didn't know it was your mother-in-law yeah. though, but yeah. So, and then I, that was what we did. That's yeah. what we painted that's together. How you, that's the intimacy of which you knew her. You didn't know her professionally, as it were. No. You knew her as, as family. Yeah. So that's really lovely. So that's about, you know, finding the connection. Where is the connection? Sometimes mm. it's not where you think it will be. Yeah. And you've got to work through it mm. in order to find that authenticity. Yeah, yeah. One thing I do want to talk about, though, is... As I said, portraiture seems so intimidating because you're trying to create a likeness to somebody that actually exists and yes. will be able to, they know themselves better yeah. than anybody else. How do you find that as an artist? How do you not get intimidated by the fact that you're painting someone that exists and is, <laughs> and, and create their personality on a canvas and the mood and emotions of, of that, of that moment you're having with them as well is... Okay, well, good question. I, my ex illustration for that is... I painted my friend Ant recently, mm. Ant Wilson, he's called. He's a poet. Yeah. Right. And Hi, Ant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're listening. We, we go way back and have a lot of relationship yeah. under our belt. Yeah. Um, and I was looking for a, a subject so that I could enter the, um, the National Portrait Gallery competition. Right, the, yeah. Um, the BP. Mm which I've entered many years and never been successful in. Um, but it's each time amazing. I enter it, I want to do something meaningful, mm -hmm. you know, as, as my submission piece. Absolutely. So I went round to Ant's house and I set up my easel and I, we're starting to talk and we're talking about his work and his life and how he sees life. Mm -hmm. And he strikes this pose sitting on the sofa where he's got his hand on his head <laughs> and he's leaning to one side. The as, thinker. Like yeah, <laughs> just, as he, just as he's talking. And I just think, that is Ant. Right, so I do like, don't move. <laughs> Stay, like Stay that right there. And I started right. to sketch him. You know, some I do rely on photographs a lot of the time as well. Yeah. But there's something more that you get from practicing drawing that person mm -hmm. in that moment yeah. that you can take away with you to combine with your reference material as well. Yeah, yeah. And I and I sketched Ant for just a few minutes, and I got him. I got something. I looked at my painting. And I got something of mm. the likeness, but also the person. Mm. And it wasn't much. I mean, it was a really scrappy sketch, mm. but it was enough to be able to take away and develop and work on and know yeah. that I got that foundation in mm. place. So do you find that as well as trying to express um, the figure that you are painting, are you also, are you putting, you're putting yourself into it? Are you mm -hmm. expressing an emotion yourself through your work? Well, I think somebody wise once said that a portrait is a portrait of two people. It's a portrait of the person right. in it. That's what I was... Yeah, that's you know, kind of what... And of the artist themselves, mm. because that artist has their own unique language of mark-making and choices and yeah. um, looking and yeah. communicating. So I think it's a, it, it is a portrait of mm -hmm. two people. Mm -hmm. But you're also dealing with the different angles of how you see yourself, how the audience sees you, how you have chosen to represent yourself is yeah. also part of that um, dynamics. So that's really interesting. Um, portraiture is so personal, as we've, you know, we've said that a couple of times. How do you grapple with the intimacy of the subject matter, but also making it accessible to your audience and commercial, as it were? Golly, um... I try not to think about it being commercial mm. when I'm making it because I think yeah. that would that would take me off course in, right. in okay. my in my thinking because if I was always making something that I thought would be sell mm. sellable, yeah. then I wouldn't be focusing on being present with what I'm painting. Mm -hmm. But having said that, 
after I did the Sky Art show, I had a phone call from a guy in Australia mm. who wanted me to do his portrait, mm. um, and which, which I did, but it was for a very commercial reason, right, which okay. he'd written an autobiography. He was kind of like some elite member of an SAS equivalent wow. in Australia. <laughs> and he, he'd been around the world. I mean, you don't world. want to get that portrait wrong, I tell you. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> I, I think he trained Nelson Mandela's bodyguard oh and he'd God. been dropped into <laughs> war zones and he'd written this autobiography and he wanted a particular type of um, portrait on the, on the front mm. cover, which we achieved. But that was probably the most extreme version of it, something having to be commercial. And you were so conscious of it the entire way through because uh, you knew it was I was, be. actually, yeah. yeah. Do you think that there's, there's an element of anonymity that needs to be present in a painting for others to be open to seeing it as... Because people like to, when they look at art, they like to place themselves within an image, however yeah. that is. Yeah. Do you think, do you find that you are conscious of making it slightly anonymous so that someone might say, oh, that looks like that person, or that could be that person, or that it looks like a moment rather than a specific person. I, I do, actually. Mm. Um, it's a conscious shift away from portraiture mm -hmm. to figure painting. Yes. But there is Where like... Where there's not such a close-up on... Well, it can, it can be a close-up, but, but you can capture that person in such a way that they're not confronting you. Mm. Um, we briefly touched upon your um, kind of involvement in Sky Arts Portrait Artist of the Year. I do want to talk a little bit about that because it's such an incredible accolade and a rare thing to find someone that's kind of uh, painted live on TV. I mean, the process of that is just terrifying. But um, so in 2017, you were a semi finalist mm -hmm. yeah. at that um, at Sky Arts Portrait Artist of the Year. Because I know also featured in Sky Arts Landscape Artist mm -hmm. of the Year, I imagine a completely different process. Yeah. I might be wrong, but. Pretty much. So the portraiture show, I'd watched it for a couple of seasons mm -hmm. and I'd seen. Um, really admired the winners and how they'd approached the process. Yeah. Um, and when I got the nod to come on the show, mm. I thought to myself, I need to do some serious work here because I am ill-prepared. Mm. I'd submitted a self-portrait, which I'd had loads of time to work on. Yeah. Um, but I suddenly faced with the challenge of painting in four hours. And I look back over some of the earlier episodes and Ewan McClure, who I think reached the finals in the first episode, mm. in the first series, his words of wisdom that he'd given to camera were to paint a portrait every day for a month. <laughs> so <laughs> nothing, nothing too demanding then, goodness me. So I set about a similar sort of challenge. And oh I, my goodness, so you did do that? You <laughs> Well, I, tr I invited wow. all my friends to sit for me and I, I painted some of the worst paintings I've ever painted in my life in that four-week period. Oh my um, God. <laughs> because I was so unskilled in doing that. Yeah. Um, but in the process of painting really bad paintings, I learned a lot about what not to do. Mm -hmm. And I learned... And potential pitfalls as yeah, well. Like absolutely. You're so by the yeah. time I got to the show, yeah. a, couple of, a few weeks later, I was kind of ready mm. to do some, something in a process that I felt would be achievable yeah. and get a result. Mm. Now that said, when I got there... <laughs> it, it didn't was, stop it being super It didn't so stop being quite challenging. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I, I imagine that you're, you're, you're dealing with so many elements. You're, you're trying to do your best work on the spot, which in itself is 
kind of the biggest challenge but then you're also grappling with there's camera crews there's mm -hmm. kind of you're supposed to be you're pulled from here and there you're, you're dealing yeah. with the, the tv element of it as well you're dealing with other people who are your competition you're you know you're trying to make friends but you're also kind of um that's that's nerve-wracking as well how did you kind of deal with the interruption of the constant cameras and and things going on at the same time because i imagine working in isolation yeah potentially most of the time yeah that's a totally different thing yeah, um, I think I drew on my experience as an art director when I was in charge of photo shoots and in charge of right. a crew and other people. My job was to get the result for the client. Yeah. Like, so I kind of had to say to myself, Greg, you're the client, mm -hmm. right? Your job is to get the result here yeah. for yourself. Yeah, that's a smart way of doing it. So, so when a camera kind of got in between me and the model, yeah. I just said to the cameraman, I'm sorry, I've got 10 minutes left. Yeah, get, I mean, quite right. <laughs> get, just, just get out my way. Um, and I learned, yeah. you know, they're making a TV programme, but I'm also making a painting which I need to stand behind and say, this is representative right. of me. absolutely. And I've only got one hit to yeah. do it. To do it. And yeah. about halfway into the portrait of Trevor Eve, mm. I had done pretty much nothing more than a few pencil lines <laughs> on, my, on my canvas. And, um, oh, my goodness. Mapping, and, mapping, I call yeah. it. <laughs> and I remember Ty Shantirberg coming up to my wife at one point, who is behind me, and saying, is there a problem with Greg? <laughs> is he like, having some sort is of Is he having some sort of <laughs> and, and she And she turned around to him and just said, Oh no, he's been practicing this process for weeks. <laughs> and, and he's like, like, which process? Because I'm not quite seeing. <laughs> yeah, which was a complete lie in in that sense. But the real problem was that I'd had to do something like three TV interviews in the first hour. Right. Oh um, god. Yeah. So that's and, a whole hour. And, and I and I suddenly realised, hold on, you know, I need to take control of this. Mm -hmm. I need to get myself back on yeah. track. So where can people find you and contact you? I assume. Mm -hmm. You've got a website, social media. I do. You can find out lots about me on my website, mm -hmm. and it's gregorymason.com. Mm -hmm. Nice and simple. <laughs> on Instagram, uh, always posting up things pretty much every day, gregorymason underscore art. Fantastic. So, yeah. And I can vouch for the fact that his feed is incredibly interesting. Um, there's some amazing pieces on there. And that is all we've got time for this afternoon. Thank you for listening to Art Then and Now with me, Anna Gammons. See you next week.